Welcome back to the Allen and Warren Report. I'm Warren Baylog. Say hi, Dad. I'm Alan Baylog. We are recording here uh, Friday, the 15th. You guys will be listening to this tomorrow, Saturday. Um, and we're going to get into news and a bunch of other things, stuff that I've been neglecting actually now for a couple of weeks um, <laughs> with all the, the NJP goings-ons. Uh, going ons, but anybody who wants to get my full take on that, uh, I did a modern politics this week. Hey, what's up? You know, you're only hearing half of the show, right? And it's being indiscriminately, uh, interrupted with these sales pitches because we just don't know how else to get your attention and get you over there. Uh, our website, our podcasts are 100% listener funded. Uh, they are funded with your subscription. So if you could please do that, uh, help us out the right stuff. Biz slash paywall. Thanks. Um, where I where I gave my full views on everything that's happened, and anybody who wants to hear my thoughts on that, please watch it. Um, I'm not going to be releasing any more public discussion or, or talk or statements about it. But if Dad, you wanted to say something because you were on the Central Committee and you you haven't had a chance to address this publicly. Well, I I, uh, I it's hard to know where to start. Uh, you know, it's like when you read about these big forest fires out west, they say there's 60% out, 80% out, 90%. I think this, these fires are about 90% out, 95% out. I don't want to say any, I don't want to be like a wind that comes along and reignites things. And I really think the best thing at this point, things are, things are being handled, uh, it's really everybody needs to just step back and put things on hold. Enjoy the holidays with your family. Uh, everything we built with the NJP, uh, it, the people is the main thing. There, you know, after Charlottesville, there were a lot of people say, "No, what a disaster! What a disaster!" I never felt that way. In some ways, it was. Guys went to jail and 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 and. Uh, you know, it didn't go the way we wanted, but it was a watershed moment when, you know, all this meme stuff and and, uh, and me being a boomer, I wasn't up on it like, you know, a lot of you guys. But, you know, I, I remember Pepe the Frog and Kekistan and all that kind of stuff. And Charlottesville, all these guys came off the Internet and into the streets. That was a huge moment. And after that happened, you know, that's when the deplatforming came about uh, and the pressure was intense and lawsuits and everything else. But and there were people there were people uh, I remember being there with people who I think I mean, for sure, they've totally dropped out. That was enough for them. There was a number of people that just it was a big whoof. I got out of, barely got out of that one. Now, you know, now I don't know, I don't know where that tiki torch thing, uh, legal case is going where they're trying to nail guys for, you know, having torches and stuff. But there was, there were people who just were glad to get out of it and, and that was it. They went back to their normie life. Uh, you know, I've been around long enough involved with a number of efforts that I had a lot of hope in and, for one reason or another, they failed. Uh, but the thing that 
the thing that stays is the the people, the people are important thing. When people keep in touch with each other and, and don't give up, something new will emerge. I mean, this is a, this thing is needed and, and it's a, it's an organic impulse in our people and some individuals very strong to do something. And as long as you don't, you don't quit, you don't give up and throw in the towel, come back to fight another day in a different form. Maybe, uh, we've learned a lot of lessons like we did with Charlottesville. We've learned a lot of lessons. Uh, the NJP, when we started it, we came up with the 25 points and we attracted so many good people. And I have to say here that the supporters, the rank and file supporters, the supporter group leaders, you know, overwhelming majority of them, uh, were not the problem here. Uh, the problem was with the central committee, uh, different problems. I'm not going to go into them now. At some point in the future, I'll give a fuller, uh, account of my impressions. But for now, I'll just say, uh, the important thing now is, is for us to just step back. Everybody let the emotions chill, maintain contact with each other, uh, you know, keep the camaraderie going and, uh, there, there will be think good things in the future. I'm, I'm convinced of it. As long as you're for anybody who's anybody who stays in contact and ha- doesn't give up, uh, there, there will be good things in the future. Um, there'll, there'll be a way for people to continue doing protests. There'll be a way for political activity. I'm convinced of it because there's a need for it. Like I said, there's an organic spiritual impulse to do it and it's, and it's radically needed. So that's all going to happen. Uh, I'll say this too, that so much of the things that happen, uh, people had the idea, you know, there was an issue and people, well, this is right and this is wrong. Um, it's not just a matter of being right and wrong when you have the responsibility of holding things together. Uh, timing is very important. You know, there's a scene in the movie Rob Roy where the, where the British redcoats are there in Scotland and Rob Roy's younger brother, he just can't resist. He, he's got to, he just got to fire a gun at him. And he ends up getting a bunch of the guys killed. It, it turns into a disaster because he couldn't wait. He couldn't wait to the, to the right time. And, and that's what a lot of this was. And I'll say that uh, watching Mike through this whole thing, Mike's, uh, Mike is a guy that can see nuanced positions. Mike's a guy who his sense of timing was good. And Mike did everything possible to have the interest of the, of the NJP in mind with his decisions. And for people who weren't privy to everything that was going on, you know, it might've looked one way or another, but you know, you have to have, you have to have people listen to you. Uh, uh, the, the guy in charge has to have people listen to you. And uh, I think Mike did a great, great job at, you know, trying to do his best, hold things together. 
it wasn't Mike, uh, why this thing fell apart. And it wasn't the, the supporter groups. Um, so, you know, having said all that, it, it's, uh, it's a sad thing. I, I went through a period where I w- would wake up in the morning there last week. Uh, the only thing I can compare it to is when someone, somebody very close to you dies and you're sound asleep and you wake up and it hits you that they're gone, you know. And I was literally sick about this. But uh, if you really, I think between uh, what Mike said on Mark Collett's show uh, this past week and uh, Warren and Emily's Modern Politics that they released, if you watch those two things, uh, that, that about sums up the rise and fall of the, of, of the NJP, but there's still, there's still the people, there's still the ideas and there's still a, a, a will and determination to do something. So like I said, like with Charlottesville, if people who hang in there and like I said, I, you know, I've, I've been hanging in there from George Wallace failed, Ross Perot failed, uh, uh, you know, NSWP P failed, uh, with the national Alliance, basically collapsed after Pierce died. Uh, and you just keep trying. It's, you know, it's like, um, you get in a relationship with somebody and, uh, they seem like a good person, great person. And you, and you get serious and you, you get married. And then after time, things start to emerge. You know, people, people are, when they're going together, everybody's on their best behavior. And then after you wake up in the morning and you have financial problems, uh, after a few years, things start to emerge. And, uh, they used to say the seven year itch, you know, people, seven years. And that's when like divorces would happen. Um, or it's like a job, you know, I, I had a lot of truck driving jobs and you, 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 you research, you think, well, you know, where's a good company to work for? And so you, you hear things and maybe talk to other drivers and they say, yeah, hey, yeah, this is, this is good. That's good. Uh, you get the, jo- you apply for the job, you go to orientation and they have their equivalent of a propaganda minister. He's telling you how great this company is and you're all excited. And then you start getting loads and running the road and then you want to get home and then you, you know, you want to get unloaded and you want to get paid for everything you're doing. And after a month or so, you start saying, I was taken again. But, you know, with a relationship or with a job, I mean, what are you going to do? You just throw in a towel and say, that's it. I'm done with the opposite sex. I'm just going to be by myself or, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, not drive a truck anymore if that's, that's, if that's your, uh, profession, uh, no, you gotta just, you got, you try again, you go at it and you try again and that's all you can do. And that's all we can do. And, uh, you know, we were probably too much, uh, you know, fake it till you make it thing. I mean, always trying to put a, uh, you know, a rosy, put out a rosy picture, uh, and it, 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 it's not that we were, uh, hoodwinking people. That possibility was there. And, and you, you know, you have to, you have to think that way. 
But when things start unraveling, it was kind of a domino effect, and uh, we are where we are. So I think in the future, uh, we got a lot of seasoned guys now, people people who a lot of guys came in. NJP was the first thing they came into, and it was it seemed like it was going up, 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 and this was a big kind of crash here. And I understand why people were depressed and, and, uh, it's hard on you when, when, when it first happens. But like I say, I've been doing this stuff for a long time and I'm not about to give up. And, uh, I know, I know good things are in the, in the future. So, uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Well said. And, um, I'll just, since I've also paused the NJP weekly report, uh, I, I do want to mention something that I would normally do on there, which is Operation White Christmas. Of course, list number three is out. The third of lists for Operation White Christmas is now ready. Families 44 through, what is this? 83. This is on the nationaljusticeparty.com website. And, uh, the other, some of the other lists, there were, oh, okay. So there were only four lists from the previous round with a couple items remaining. And that's on the on the website. Lists will be marked as private if other community members have already purchased all items on the list. When buying an item on an OWC list, make sure to deselect share your default shipping address with the recipients when you add something to your cart. Otherwise, the recipient will see their address in order to send a thank you, presumably. Also, please make sure to send, select the address for current residence gift registry address at checkout since it's not automatic. It will be the first one listed under other addresses. We don't want people sending the gifts to themselves by mistake. And the note was to ensure everyone. Oh, never mind. Yeah. Okay. So requesters, uh, the, the last day for request was uh, Sunday, December 10th. But anyway, uh, so the last Operation White Christmas list is out or the third opera. I think there might be. I don't think there's one more. There might be one more, but um, the third list is out. And guys, if you can get a, an item on that list, please do so and get it to a white family in need. That Operation White Christmas, as we've been saying, is is full steam of ahead in spite of everything else here that has happened. Hey, you're still listening to only half the show? Get behind the paywall and get the rest of the story. Go to the rightstuff.biz/paywall and choose the subscription model that works best for you. And don't forget. Every Tuesday evening, there is an Odyssey stream where Sudden Sun will take your donations through a credit card or a debit card in exchange for a subscription. You have no idea how much content you're missing. Go to the rightstuff.biz slash paywall and let's fix that. So, yeah, uh, time to get back to the news because this is stuff. There's been so much going on that I, I haven't had a chance to comment on and a lot that I've just missed with the, with the travel and everything else. Uh so the one thing here was um, that the UN did a vote for a huge vote for ceasefire in Gaza. Israel's flooding the Moss tunnels, um, which I know they had talked about doing, but I, I think they had some. There were some problems with that for for various reasons. Um, but yeah, it's it's amazing. You look away from this war in Gaza, so-called war. I mean, this massacre. You look away from it for for just a few days, and then. The death count is what is it up to? It's past eighteen thousand now. Yeah, yeah, it's. I think it's close to yeah nineteen thousand. Uh, and it says, um, it says that uh, yeah, okay. So the vote 
153 in favor and 10 against with 23 abstentions, non-binding vote. Growing international opposition to war left about 18,000 Palestinians dead and large parts of Gaza in tatters creating a humanitarian crisis. It was opposed by the U.S. and Israel. Um, the U.S. vetoed a similar Security Council resolution Friday and was the only member to vote against it. You know, MSN had a, uh, an article the other day uh, about the body of 28-year-old hostage recover, recovered in Gaza, Israel says. And it's a big, like, a story, you know, about her family and who she was and goes on about this one Jewish who, who you know, was killed. Meanwhile, there's like 18,000. I mean, each one of them has a story. But you're not hearing that. You know, they personalize this. Everybody can relate to this. Oh, what if that was my daughter? Oh, that's terrible, you know. Uh, I mean, it's just incredible the way they way, way they do that. They're, they're actually making no effort to hide uh, what they believe is that a Jewish life is worth way more, infinitely more than, than a Palestinian life. They're not even trying to hide it. Well, I, love, I mean, we said this before, but that's, that was the whole thing about Netanyahu doing the, uh, oh, this is the equivalent of eight, nine, 11s, 10, nine, 11s, 20, 9, 11s for Israel. Well, and, and I did the math on, on, uh, Gaza at one point there, and I'd like to do it again now, but, for the population of Gaza, and the t- I forget how many times, like 200 9-11s, 259 11s for Gaza, for the equivalent. Now it would be much higher than that. So I love how that logic is used the one way but not the other way. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen, I can't recall this kind of slaughter outside of maybe uh, a couple tribes in Africa uh, back decades ago. But... I've never seen this kind of, you know, total destruction and slaughter of a people like what what is going on in Gaza now in my lifetime. I can't remember. Well, it is. It's absolutely under if it was anybody else, if it was any other country, this would be war crimes. There would be war crimes tribunals. There would be, you know, arrest warrant. I mean, and it would be a genocide if it was any other country on Earth this would be considered a genocide and there would be calls for war crimes trials. And it's just amazing how uh, like the whole power dynamic is revealed by, by this. I mean, the resolution here with the, with the general, I mean that right there, every time one of these votes is cast and it's like 150 to, to two, you know, or whatever, it's a reminder of, who won World War II and how they set up the post-war world to just reflect their power interests, the people who won the war. And that's what Ahmadinejad used to say all the time back in the aughts when George Bush was doing his stuff. I remember him in 2006, 2007, 2008 just saying, how come, you know, these, these, these people won a war 60 years ago. Uh, they don't get to just dictate forever to the rest of humanity what's right and what's wrong and who has power and who 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 doesn't. And it, and it always goes back to that quote. I think it was either Goering or Hitler said that thing that the League of Nations was described it as this noble society for the moral defense of former acts of violence. Uh, so that just shows the power balance, the fact that like literally the whole world 
can can vote in the United Nations for a ceasefire. I mean, a ceasefire. They're not even saying like Israel should be condemned. They're, they're just saying, hey, stop killing people. Well, it, it, it illustrates how, in effect, how uh, useless the UN is. Because if you have a, the, the one superpower backing you up, you can commit all the war crimes you want, and and they can't do it. They won't. They can't, and they won't do anything about it. I mean, condemnations, resolutions, everything. You know, just thousands dying, and and uh, you know nobody has the power to stop it because it's against the United States, and that's that's why you know in the beginning of this thing. Uh, I kind of had hopes that that uh, uh, Hezbollah and Iran and, and Lebanon, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, even even the Jordanians might go off because they, they have a huge uh, Palestinian popu- population in Jordan, and and I, and I think there was a moment there had they all just, you know, went against Israel, I mean, they could have overrun them, you know, but. Uh, People, you have to look at from their leader's point of view. They see what's happening in Gaza, and if it's not happening to them, people aren't anxious to get into that and bring that down on their own people. So, I mean, I can understand why they didn't, but it's a shame because I think there was an opportunity there to to actually overrun Israel. Yeah, and and well, everybody played it really cool because nobody wanted a full full scale war. But I think that, you know, the question here is going to be to to what degree does losing all moral legitimacy even matter in the game of power politics? I mean, the thing of like how many divisions does he have? The Pope, you know, what did Stalin, Stalin said that? Yeah. yeah, the Pope, huh? he condemned me. How many divisions does he have? Like ruthless power politics. What's funny is, though, these are the same people that keep going on and on and on and on and on. And they've been doing this all year, talking about Russia and China and saying that what what we are at risk with or what we're at risk with if Trump gets back in is the end of the rules-based international order. And instead, we're going to go back to like a wild west of, of geopolitical rivalries and power politics where the only thing that happens in the world is based on spheres of influence and uh, the, the self-interest of various uh, powers in their spheres of influence and just like ruthless realpolitik, you know. And that's, that's always the, the refrain we've, we've heard from these people for so long now with, with Ukraine is the big thing we risk. It's just a return to ruthless power politics and and a, a going against the <clears throat> the rules based international order. I mean, and and what has what shows more the role of just naked power, the ability to do something, than this war, this so called war with Gaza. I mean, it's just it's just a, it's a one sided total slaughter. Uh, yeah, well, and they they well they pay lip service, like even the Biden administration. Here's an article from MSN. Uh, uh, White House in in, intensive talks with Israel on the next phase of Gaza war, aid says. And it says, uh, Washington is pushing, pushing Israel, pushing Israel to focus the war in Gaza on precise targeting of Hamas leaders rather than widespread bombing and ground operations. 
the White House National Security Advisor said on Friday without saying when the shift would happen. So this is just this is just bullshit talk. They're pushing Israel and they're 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 uh, urging them to focus on targeting Hamas leaders rather than the widespread bombing. But then it said without saying when the shift would happen. Well, I'll tell you when the shift will happen after they've decimated all of Gaza. They're going to talk like this and let them go, let them continue their genocide and destruction until the Jews have totally crushed Gaza. Then they'll say, well, now we're going to look for the uh, Hamas leaders. I mean, they're just, they're just lying. You know, it's the oldest thing in politics. It's just lying, bald-faced lying. It still works. Yeah. Yeah. This, so, <clears throat> so this is what I know you, you mentioned this to me and, and we want to talk about this. So amid the increasing resistance to the war, the Biden administration is sending two of its top officials to the Middle East. National security advisor Jake Sullivan is scheduled to visit Israel later this week and talk to Netanyahu about an endpoint to major combat in Gaza. And next week, defense secretary Lloyd Austin plans to travel to Israel, Bahrain and Qatar. Now, uh, this is, um, oh, and, and, and like this, this is an article, uh, by the way, this is that MSN article. What's funny is it just shows developments. And, uh, one of the things right at the top, and, and there's so many of these that we're losing track of it. You know, I've, I've completely lost track. Israeli airstrikes killed at least 23 people in the southern Gaza city of Rafa, where citizens had been told to seek shelter. The Associated Press reported. In central Gaza, 16 women and four children were among the 33 bodies that arrived at the Alask Martyrs Hospital in Deir al-Bala after overnight night strikes. So again, telling people to seek shelter, then striking the shelters. I mean, this is so evil. This is so sick, what they have been doing for so long. Um, you know, what I could just picture their satanic smiles, you know, oh, when, yeah. when they pull, pull that off. Yeah, so... Anyway, um, but this Jake Sullivan, you pointed out, and it's very interesting that, you know, why not send Tony Blinken? You know, he's their top diplomat. Why not send him? And then maybe it's obvious that, uh, or maybe it's just becoming a bad look for them to keep sending this Zionist Jew over to be like the, the, the guy representing the United States. Well, people are starting to notice we're being led around by the nose. Right, right, right. So again, uh, so they send this like red, uh, com, you know, red faced blonde Irishman, uh, to be the face of all this pro Israel stuff. I want to do a little thing on Jake, Jake Sullivan here, uh, cause this is very interesting. So here was another one. This is from today. U.S. presses Israel to begin winding down Gaza war, presses Israel to begin winding down. Uh, what does that mean, presses? What does you know, that mean? Well, yeah, I mean, like tomorrow, U.S. could get Israel to 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 stop the entire war immediately. Um, so that's the funny thing. If they're not going to use any leverage. But so this guy, Jake Sullivan, advised Israeli leaders on their plans to move to the next phase, shift away from Israel's reliance on pummeling airstrikes and ground assaults towards more precise targeted military operations. And warned a protracted conflict would further inflame the region and make Gaza harder to govern after the war. So, and this guy, you know, said it made little headway. 
In the growing rift between Israel and U.S. over civilian casualties, the length of the conflict, flagging international support for Israel's campaign and the future governance of the Gaza Strip. I mean, pretty much everything there is a joke. Uh, flagging international support. I mean, the whole world is like violently opposed to it. The future governance of the Gaza Strip. I mean, they have said that Israel has said that they have no interest in actually governing Gaza, but they will not allow Hamas to come back. Obviously, they want to pick who runs it for the Palestinians. Um, well, the, the, the growing rift between the U.S. and Israel. Are you kidding me? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a hair crack in the Great Wall of China. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and Biden's making these 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 saying this stuff, you know, focused on saving civilian lives and blah, 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 blah. But this guy Sullivan. Let's talk about him for a second. So he is the, I mean, very creepy, very creepy dude. You look this guy up, uh, his his official, uh, or no, I'm sorry, that's not his official government portrait. This is from the Maurice R. Greenberg World Fellows Program at Yale University. His coloring is very Aryan, but uh, he has a weird face. Well, he's just, he's one of these deep state ghouls. I mean, this guy is an absolute deep state ghoul. Uh, he looks, he looks like a, I don't know. He looks like a, um, a character out of, uh, dark shadows or something. You know, he looks, he looks like he should be wearing, uh, a, 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 uh, Barnabas, uh, you know, the Collins, uh, one of those vampire capes. I mean, he's just a ghoulish looking guy, but again, you look at his, um, his Wikipedia, um, he had previously served as again. So this is their their token goy, basically. This is their token goy who is supposed to go in there and not like piss off the rest of the world that they're sending, you know, a hook nosed Jew to go and and represent the United States, talking about how Jews are are killing too many Palestinians. So they get this goy, and they send him over. Uh, and again, I don't know where they get these guys. He reminds me in terms of his background and his resume. He reminds me a lot of Mike Pompeo. You know, yeah. and a couple of these others real, real, just like it, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's like the deep state grows these people in a laboratory. I mean, their whole lives, I guess in a nation of like 335 million people, you can find people like this. I mean, you can find in these from early on in his career, he, he made all the right decisions to get where he is today. He went to the right schools. He kissed the right asses. He went to the right parties and you know, these guys, there's that picture of Bill Clinton standing there with, uh, who was it with, uh, uh, Sven needs me to sign up for a paywall subscription at the right stuff. Biz slash paywall. Okay, Sven, I'm your number one guy. I'll do it. Well, he's, he's like a high school kid and he, and he was sucking up to, I forget which president was it Kennedy or somebody. I forget, but anyway, you could tell Bill Clinton is a guy who was thinking about uh, becoming president, dreaming about it when he was probably in like seventh or eighth grade. Well, that's like Lyndon Johnson. I mean, Lyndon Johnson is one of these, he's like a monster who who just like was when he was like a four-year-old kid was wanting to be president of the United States and would like kill anybody to make it happen. But anyway, this guy, Jake Sullivan, so... I, I always wonder about this because, I mean, with these Jews, it's like you can understand, 
you can understand them, what they're doing and what their motivation is. They're just, they're just Jews advancing Jewish interests. It's very, very simple. It's very straightforward. Um, it's like trying to understand why like a Mongol in Genghis Khan's army is, is so pro Mongol, you know, like right. that's, that's, a, that's the level of like, it doesn't take a lot of head scratching to figure out where they're coming from. But this guy, so look at this. He's national security advisor, uh, previously served as director of policy to president Barack Obama, national security advisor to then vice president Biden and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary Hillary Clinton at the U.S. State Department, also served as Senior Advisor to the U.S. Federal Government at the Iran nuclear negotiations, and Senior Policy Advisor to 2016 uh, Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, as well as a visiting professor at Yale Law School. Um, and he took office as National Security Advisor in January of 2021. So look, look at this guy's background. I mean, it's just fascinating to me always to diagnose like the, the, the way Zog works and the people they get to do this shit. Um, he was from Burlington, Vermont, Irish, grew up in Min uh, Minneapolis. Uh, was a, his father was a professor at University of Minnesota School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Mother was a high school guidance counselor. He attended Southwest High School in Minneapolis, where he graduated in 1994, was a Coca-Cola scholar, debate champion, president of student council, and voted most likely to succeed in his class. I hate him already. He attended Yale, where he majored in international studies and political science and was awarded these various things. Uh, I mean, the guy's probably just like a raging sociopath, you know, <laughs> like the dark triad has, is written all over him. Um, won a Rhodes Scholarship, went to Oxford, studied international relations. So, like, once someone has gone through those programs, Yale and Oxford of international relations, it's like, if they're white... Oh, look at this. Uh, Truman Scholar, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, he interned at the Council of... He interned at yeah, the Council on Foreign, Foreign Relations. Relations. Imagine being an intern at the Council on Foreign Relations. Also worked for Brookings Institution... Uh, oh yeah, and, Yale, and, and the Center for the Study of Globalization. Yale Center for the Study of Globalization. Right. So, I mean, these people just grow. They're like the uh, the what is it? The the black orcs in uh, the Uruk High or whatever in in uh, the Twin Towers. I mean, they, they're grown out of like a slime pit of, of and and they just emerge. And uh, what's his salary? I want. Who knows? So he's 47 years old. He probably has presidential ambitions, but, you know, this guy will never be elected president. But anyway, um, let me let me scroll down here. Um, so. The thing that he is known for, this is what I wanted to, to get at. The thing that this guy is known for is um, a big shift in America's. Uh, Economic policy of all things for a national look at, security. Look at, the, look at the pictures in this Wikipedia article of him with Israeli flags and with Israeli Jews. Uh, I mean, th this isn't a forward article. This is the Wikipedia. Yeah. So there's a heading here by. I write, sometimes I, I wish this was a video show, but I'll just describe you guys what what we have here. So Biden administration. It says Sullivan with Israel's national security advisor Mir Ben Shabbat and Israel's ambassador. Gilad Erdogan in April 2021. So there he is wearing, he looks like an Antifa with a mask with big Israeli flags and little, um, 
the little menorahs all over the background. Then there's a big picture of a menorah, him, Sullivan with Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, December 2021. Then you scroll down, there's him with Ukrainian President Zelensky, uh, November 2022. Then him with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem, January of 2023. Like, all this guy does is meet with powerful Jews. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the... Um, where is it? Let me find it. Um, on October, okay, so October 15th, uh, in October 2nd, he stated in an article on foreign affairs, the Biden administration has had de-escalated crises in Gaza. Five days later, Hamas launched a large-scale attack on Israel from the Gaza Strip. The article was later edited for online release. <laughs> uh, on October 15th, Jake Tapper interviewed and raised questions about Israel's blockade of the Gaza Strip and the impact on its population. Sullivan claimed the United States worked with Israel to, quote, make sure innocent Palestinians get access to water, medicine, and food and are protected from bombardment. October 29th. saying that. Right. To make a statement like that. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, of course, October 29th, 2023, uh, Sullivan dismissed calls for a ceasefire warning any potential humanitarian pause, because remember, that was a separate thing they were talking about, was the humanitarian pause, to get hostages out of Gaza could benefit Hamas. He declined to comment on whether Israel had committed war crimes and whether Gazans would be allowed to return to their homes. Sullivan stated Israel has a right, indeed a responsibility, to defend itself against a terrorist group. So, I mean, again, a guy like this, I always like to speculate, does this guy just know that the Jews run the United States and he's just made a decision to, to, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. Period. Right. 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 Um, then, uh, uh, oh, he, oh, oh, he, oh yeah. Oh yeah. He better, he, they, he better hope they keep running. It so this is the last thing. So do you think like this guy, what, what, what do they, do they have something on him? I mean, I think a guy like this, they don't need to have anything on him because he's just, like I said, a genetic Zog tool. But get this, personal life. This is unbelievable. And this, this, I have seen, end. I have seen this over and over and over again with these, with the, like I say, these deep state people. Sullivan is married to Margaret Maggie Vivian Goodlander an intelligence officer in the United States Navy Reserve who served as a former advisor to Senators Joe Lieberman and John McCain in the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. A graduate of Yale University and Yale Law School, Goodlander served as a law clerk to then to then Chief Judge Merrick Garland of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and Associate Justice Stephen Pryor of the United States Supreme Court. I mean, oh, and this is, in late April 2023, an unknown man reportedly entered Sullivan's West End home in the middle of the night but left before Secret Service agents were alerted, based. <laughs> but you know, some random niggers. Yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing here is... This is a family that has been riding first class their all their lives on Satan airline. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And Goodlander, I wonder, what do you think? I wonder what kind of name that is. Who knows? But I mean, but that, that, so this woman, an intelligence officer, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of intelligence officers in the United States Navy reserve who don't advise Joe Lieberman, John McCain 
and then uh, serve as a law clerk to Merrick Garland. I mean, these people are pure evil, and it's amazing the way they trade they trade places too. But anyway, um, let me so let me um, let me go go on with this. So this guy is known apparently for um, where is it? Uh, he gave the speech to the Brookings Institute where he outlined uh, this was back in May. He outlined the Biden administration's inter- international economic policy. And it's interesting just because uh this guy is the type of person who you would say who I would say based on my experience watching these things is just going to be a classic neoliberal you know, I mean, this is like a stamped out neoliberal and that's what he would be. And that's who he works for. And that's who he's a part of. Well, no, uh, in fact, he is a, uh, you know, American first, uh, populist. Um, I mean, not quite, but this is the interesting thing. Um, this speech that he gave foreign policy, uh, com did an article about it that said the era of neoliberal U.S. foreign policy is over. But what comes next is very much in the air. Um, and, and I'll just read a few paragraphs of this. It says, for communities around the world, especially in the global south, it's been clear for decades that the neoliberal Washington consensus, which emerged in the 1980s and focused on deregulation, privatization, austerity, and trade liberalization, was a predatory and destructive model. Neoliberal, I mean, that's that's the worst kind of conservative, right? Well, yeah, well, neoliberal, well, again, remember. I mean, remember neoliberal well, means the worst kind of conservative. Well, remember, neoliberal is a reference to classical liberalism, so right. economic liberal, like 19th century economic liberalism, which is interesting. That, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. indistinguishable from... Uh, George Bush, right? Right, of course, right. Well, because that's the thing, because these people learn from each other. I mean, the neoliberal era of the Clintons and of Tony Blair was just in a continuation of the policy, the economic policies set by uh, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And that's the funny thing with all these things. I mean, whether it be like, uh, you know, Obama's drone strikes, you know, or um, from, from one administration to another at least in my lifetime it's amazing how there's such a continuity of policy uh, even when there's changes like one one because let's face it the stuff that we're talking about here with like more of an emphasis on american industry and american trade was all started by trump and biden is continuing it so why is biden continuing it well that's what we'll get to but so so this idea I mean, there is, like Wallace said in 1968, there's not a dime's worth of difference between them. No. I remember when Obama got all, all these environmentalists voted for the Democrat Obama. And one of the first things he did was open up uh, gale, uh, or gas and oil exploration in the Gulf of Mexico. One of the first things he did, which all the environmentalists were against, and Shortly thereafter, it was a terrible spill that that is, everybody has forgotten about. It was it was a horrendous environmental disaster. There there's like just sludge on the bottom there that that nobody's even talking about it anymore. But it was horrendous, and that was Obama that all these oh, environmentalists yeah. <laughs> voted for. Oh yeah, 
but yeah, so this, uh, this idea of – so let me read that again. The focus – the neoliberal Washington consensus which emerged in the 1980s focused on deregulation, privatization, austerity, and trade liberalization. And the global south for decades has said this was a predatory and destructive model. What's funny was it, it, it's predatory and destructive to the, the white people of the West you know, as well. Uh, but the unfairness of this system – was the message of the global justice movement that protested global north-controlled economic institutions like the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund in the 1990s and early 2000s. The same ideas have powered multiple waves of global protests since then, including Occupy Wall Street. The system of neoliberalism inspired outrage for being prone to corruption, unresponsive government, environmental destruction, and elite self-dealing for creating a safety net for the rich and to doling out market discipline for everyone else. For four decades, the dominant view in both U.S. parties was a neoliberal approach to economics at home and abroad. But April 27th marked the day the global justice movement's memo finally landed in Washington. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan gave the most significant foreign policy speech thus far by any Biden administration official. It effectively announced that the era of neoliberal foreign policy was over. And uh, this, so I actually went and, and just read the whole speech. And it's, it's on the White House website. Uh, and it was April 27th. Remarks by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on renewing American economic leadership at the Brookings Institution. And uh, you go through it, and he talks about um, – <laughs> see, see, he basically – here's how he frames it. This is very interesting. He said, after the Second World War, the United States led a fragmented world – led a fragmented world to build a new international economic order. If you're hearing this, then you're only getting half the show. Did you know that therightstuff.biz is 100% listener-funded? Thanks to this censorship machine, this project can only be sustained by listeners like you, by supporters like you. So why don't you get behind the paywall at therightstuff.biz slash paywall and show the powers that be that they can't silence the most silenced. It lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It sustained thrilling technological revolutions, and it helped the United States and many other nations around the world achieve new levels of prosperity. But the last few decades revealed cracks in those foundations. A shifting global economy left many working Americans and their communities behind. Now, again, right there, a shifting global economy left them behind. I like how that uh, the language there is always like uh, it was an inevitable thing. It just it just happened as like the changing winds. You know, it happened like this changing of the seasons. That's the way the way demographic changes. Well, even even the, the paragraph before that where it says the United States led a fragmented world to build a new international economic order. The United States led a fragmented world that the United States created. Yes. Yeah. So, um. Uh, Financial crisis shook the middle class. A pandemic exposed the fragility of our supply chains. A climate changing climate threatened lives and livelihood. Russia's invasion of Ukraine underscored the risks of overdependence. So this moment demands that we forge a new consensus. 
Now, he says it this way. That's why the United States under President Biden is pursuing a modern industrial and innovation strategy, both at home and with partners around the world, one that invests in the sources of our own economic and technological strength that promotes diversified and resilient global supply chains that sets high standards from everything from labor and the environment to trusted technology and good governance and that deploys capital to deliver on public goods like climate and health. Um, and he goes through and he talks about, you know, I'll, I'll just read like the subheadings. First, America's there were four fundamental challenges, he said, when Biden came to office. First, America's industrial base had been hollowed out. Uh, and he talks about how the vision of public investment that energized the American project in the post-war years and indeed for most of our history had faded and given way to a set of ideas that championed tax cutting and deregula- deregulation privatization over public action and trade liberalization as an end in itself. And the assumption at the heart of all this policy was that markets always allocate capital productively and efficiently, no matter what our competitors did, no matter how big our shared challenges grew and no matter how many guardrails we took down. So he goes through and, and, uh, says, um, you know, that there was an embedded assumption that the type of growth didn't matter. All growth was good growth. And that the global financial crisis and the global pandemic uh, laid bare the limits of those assumptions. Then he says the second challenge we faced was adapting to a new environment defined by geopolitical and security competition with important economic aspects. So, so see here, this is interesting. Why is the national security advisor giving the most important speech on economic, economic. policy? Yeah. Yeah. Because this is the key, this is the key right here. Right. It's 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 to the point where I mean, and, and so so it's like you could say because security is is not not just maintaining your own economic well being, but security to these people is total domination of all economic activity everywhere. Right. That's what security is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I'll just go through and I don't want to lay out some conclusions of this, but he says that, yeah. So second challenge, adapting to a new environment defined by geopolitical and security competition with economic impacts. Um, and, and he, and you know, then there's just these filthy lies. Much of the international economic policy of the last few decades had relied upon the premise that economic integration would make nations more responsive, responsible and open, and that the global order would be more peaceful and, co- and cooperative, that bringing countries into the rules-based order would incentivize them to adhere to its rules. It didn't turn out th- that way. So again, they're presenting this, the, let's just, I'll stop with the first two points. The way he's presenting this is, oh, we, we, we were very well meaning. You know, we had people that just, that, that thought that, uh, greed is good. You know, that's the old mantra of Wall Street of the, of the eighties, right? Gordon Gecko. We, we have this, we have this naive assumption. You know, these, uh, these idealists with their, with their economic principles of, of, of the, the market solves every problem. They had this naive assumption. That if we just deregulate everything and cut taxes for the rich and privatize everything and 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 open free trade, that that'll just benefit everybody, and 
and that capital, you know, the invisible hand will make everything great. And I remember, you know, going to college uh, during the early aughts and having many, many professors uh, always singing these the, the praises of these policies. I mean, this was all the rage back then. Like all the uh, everyone was just like talking about the the markets and in the invisible hand. And then it's like the other thing was uh, the naive assumption that this would just lead to a, a, a better world where where once they adopt these things, everyone will integrate and get more peaceful, and this will they will be incentivized to adhere to the rules, and uh, everything will be good. And it's the end of history. What? I've said many times, if the United States, I mean, he has these ideas. I have a, a, another idea, autarky, right? If the United States, that is basically a continent it, it, from ocean to ocean and mighty rivers, rich farmland, mighty forests loaded with minerals, if the United States of America can't be self-sufficient, how do you expect these other, how do you expect a country like, say, Libya, where they have like, what, 10 miles along the coast that, that they can grow some rest of its desert? I mean, these people, it, it's like they got to be everywhere doing everything. You know, the other idea is everybody do their own, keep it local, keep it national. And if there's a, a mineral or something that exists in another part of the world, just buy it, just trade with them. Why do you have to always go in there and topple the government, set up a puppet regime, and rip the people off of their natural resources? I mean, it doesn't benefit the American people. It doesn't benefit their people. It only benefits these the, the, these top dogs that, that want to control everything. There's people who exist by honest work and by producing something, and there's people who exist who want to live and live very well by just controlling things, just controlling things. And these people want to control everything. They can't stand that there's any kind of economic activity going on anywhere in the world that they're not getting their cut. It's, it's the old, uh, it's the old protection racket. You know, if you, if you let us skim off the top, uh, your business won't burn down. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it is. You, you won't be bombed into, into the stone age. If you just let us come in there and abuse your people, you know, rape your labor and rip off your, your, your resources. I mean, this is a criminal international criminal bunch of scumbags that it's just, they got to go. They got to go. They're, they're there's never going to be P and, and it's all the, you know, left always talking about military industrial complex. It's there because you see this guy's a security guy and they benefit it, it, like all these, all these uh, bombs going to, to Israel and Ukraine. I mean, there's people getting filthy rich selling that shit. Yeah. And the intent, the intent is the thing that's implied here. That's so like missing um, with this spin. Now, again, I mean, deep state scumbags are going to lie like there's no news there. But it's just funny how they're reframing this because, I mean, this this is a I will agree with the foreign policy magazine that this is a huge shift. But what's interesting is that they're uh, well, let me let me finish this and then I'll get to it. Um, so first, uh, the industrial base was hollowed out. 
Second, um, there was no, um, uh, there was now geopolitical and security competition. And he's saying like, um, the reality, by the time President Biden came into office, we had to contend with the reality that a large non-market economy had been integrated into the international economic order in a way that posed considerable challenges. The People's Republic of China continued to subsidize at a massive scale both traditional industry sectors like steel as well as key industries of the future like clean energy, digital infrastructure, and advanced biotechnologies. America didn't just lose manufacturing. We eroded our competitiveness in critical technologies that would define the future. What's funny is – that's why these elites are shifting right there. That's right there. You know, there's been no zero uh, movement of like the working class or the people that Ross Perot spoke to, you know, about the giant sucking st- sound. You know, the communities across this this country uh, that have been devastated by globalization and trade liberalization, free trade. There has been no political movement of those people into the driver's seat no. with this this supposed big policy shift. In fact, I would say it's it's the other way around. The elite, the elite people and forces and the Jews who actually made this globalization policy, who pushed it through in the 80s and 90s, are actually more entrenched now than they were 20 years ago, I think. They're more entrenched. I mean, look at this guy, right? So – the thing here is, first of all, there's a couple of things. Because, well, because of the general population, so many of them are, st- are strung out on opioids, you know, because of the depression of what this did to them. Right. That it's hard to even get resistance going. And they got they got that double. I mean, in West Virginia, we got the double whammy right at the same time. The manufacturing jobs were sucked out. The opiates were put in within like the space of two years. And, 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 and you could, you could watch it happen. I mean, you, the communities around here, you could see it happen. And it's, again, it's true all over the country. But this idea of, okay, so the People's Republic of China is subsidizing traditional industrials. Well, again, what does that, uh, say about your free market model? I mean, it was wrong. It was wrong. I mean, China tried by, I mean, I, I remember. That's not even considered. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I remember those fucking professors, those college professors and people. I used to argue with them back then that, uh, and economists that, oh, free trade is good. The whole world is going this way. Uh, and this is before the, um, uh, before the Iraq war in the late nineties and then in the early aughts. That the whole world is just going to have free trade and this is what's best. It's what's best for South America. I remember one guy, uh, an old friend of mine who was, I think he was an international studies major. And, uh, he, uh, there was a professor that was really filling his ideas with, you know, why globalization is good. And I, I think at the time I was still like following Pat Buchanan. So I, I we, we used to argue like hell about this. And, uh, the thing is, it was supposed to like the, the the free market model, the free trade model was superior to the other models. So so how comes China won this? Like how come China is still a threat by some? I mean, shouldn't by their own logic of that time, China should have just collapsed the same way the Soviet Union did, right? But China is stronger now, you know. And Russia, as we saw with this with this uh, war where Russia's economy became much more self-reliant and cut off from all these international sources of trade and Russia's economy is doing better and it's stronger and more resilient than it was before that. 
Well, they, well, they could talk this shit and get people to maybe think, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not a, a Yale economist, but I grew up in the 60s, in the 70s, and uh, I just know, I remember, it was better. Flat, period, it was better. Uh, my father and my uncles had eighth grade education, and they all had health care, uh, dental, uh, retirement, and they lived a, a, a lower middle class or middle class income uh, way of life. So you can't tell me that and there was powerful unions back then and there was no glo- the globalization was at a minimum. You had stuff coming in made in Japan, real real cheap stuff, you know, because the Japanese were defeated and they were making all kind of little little trinkets and stuff. Uh, and it was a joke. Oh, that's made in Japan. But, uh, you you know, you can't tell people. You might be able to tell people that don't know, don't remember, weren't there. But you can't tell anybody that, that lived through that that this is better. Right. Did you know that the rightstuff.biz is 100% listener funded? The only reason you're hearing this right now is because you're only getting half the show. There's so much content you're missing, and you'll never hear these ads again if you get behind the paywall at the rightstuff.biz slash paywall. Right. So uh, economic integration didn't stop China from expanding its military ambitions or stop Russia from invading its democratic neighbors. Again, Poor, naive, innocent neoliberals who just trusted in the power of free markets to uplift humanity and just operated on this on this trusting assumption that the world, by adopting this, would just naturally want to integrate themselves into this rules. But I mean, this is all, all horseshit. So innocent. Yeah, it's just such horseshit. It's the same exact people feeding us a different line of horseshit from what they were 20 years ago, and that's what's so crazy. So then he said. Uh, the third challenge we faced was an accelerating climate crisis and the urgent need for just and efficient energy transition. Again, there is a marked difference from the rhetoric about the environment in this new era we're living in than 20 years ago, 30 years ago. For it's never about saving the planet. It's never about uh, uh, you know anything like a deforestation or 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 any of those things. It's always just framed as the climate crisis which of course does allow for i mean it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cover like anything else to use that r- rhetoric of just climate change allows it's one more thing just like saying um you know the rules-based international order where the people that are in charge that have the power now they have a, a set of rules or a set of priorities that the that humanity has to follow and operate under, and they're just like they're just enforcing the rules. You know, we're just enforcing the rules that all of humanity has to operate under. Um, and then he says this line: "Too many people believe that we had to choose between economic growth and meeting our climate goals." Well, <laughs> you know, this like one or the other. I mean, it is one or the other in many cases with the environment. It's like one or the other. You cannot have. Let me just say, you cannot have unlimited growth. And not destroy the fucking planet. You cannot have unlimited economic growth and not destroy the planet. So it's like you got to choose one or the other. And and this 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 is a that's a, that right there is a classic neoliberal. Uh, well, it's globalization that because of the uh, profits to be had, it's globalization that wants to put a, a refrigerator and an air conditioner 
in the home of every third worlder, people who were perfectly content to carry on their traditional ways of life. Right. It's globalization that, that, that has done this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Um, and then, uh, and then he talks about the challenge of inequality and its damage to democracy. He said here, the prevailing assumption was that trade enabled growth would be inclusive growth, that the gains of trade would end up getting broadly shared within nations. Bullshit. Bullshit. Like, again, oh man, we thought that this would make everyone rich, but instead we just got fabulously richer and everyone else got much poorer. Oh man. Boy, we started out in this thing with the best of intentions. I mean, stick it up your ass, you piece of shit. Jake Sullivan. Anyway, he says, he says the gains, we, 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 the assumption was the gains of trade would end up getting broadly shared. The fact is those gains failed to reach a lot of working people. The American middle class lost ground while the wealthy did better than ever. And American manufacturing communities were hollowed out while cutting-edge industries moved to metropolitan areas. See, just change that word assumption to bullshit. The prevailing bullshit was that trade-enabled growth would be inclusive growth. Right, right. Now now there's a new prevailing bullshit. Um, And, uh, you know, he talks about um, the drivers of economic equality – Inequality, key drivers are decades of trickle-down economic policies, regressive tax cuts, cuts to public investment, unchecked corporate concentration, and active measures to undermine the labor movement that built the American middle class. And he says that, uh, and our domestic economic policies failed to fully account for the consequences of our international economic policies. Anyway, and so he talks about Biden's, how Biden's going to fix all this. And I don't need to go through it, but it, he calls it the modern American industrial strategy. Um, defines, identifies specific sectors foundational to economic growth, deploys targeted public investments in these areas, um, helps American businesses what they do best, innovate, scale, and compete. Uh, this is about crowding in private investment, not replacing it. Um, so, What's interesting about all this is why are they doing this? Because we know they were perfectly happy in the era of globalization and liberalization. They did it for decades, decades upon decades upon decades. The American middle class, the white working class got worse and worse and worse and worse. These people knew exactly what they were doing. They knew why they were doing it, right? So why are they changing it? Why are they changing it? Well, there's a couple of reasons why. One of them is the the pop so-called populist thing, the discontent. They've 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 bled the victim dry. They've, they're, they're squeezing the victim so hard that there's actually like uh you know there's signs of internal dissent and and problems. And Donald Trump won't go away. Right. Yeah. Donald Trump won't go away, and they're afraid of what he represents, what's behind him, and what else could bubble up here. Because I mean, again, you have to just look at January sixth, for instance, for what it is. I mean. What is going on? What is going on with your country where you reach a point where like tens of thousands of like the kind of working white people who serve in the military, like Ashley Babbitt, you know, uh, come to a thing and actually like storm Congress in angry protest, 
you know, and are crashing through the halls of Congress, like through the windows. I mean, you have to kill those people and lock them up. Yes. And you have to kill them and lock them up and do like a huge repressive thing. I mean, give them like, like decades in prison. Uh, you know, that's a sign. Again, it's like a total war game where you, you bump up the taxes or you bump up the, uh, the problems of the population and everything goes in the red and then you have a rebellion, you know, and, and they are, they're reading the handwriting on the wall there and they know that they can't push it much harder. But the biggest thing, it's not even that because they've got the American people, they've got pretty much on lockdown between the censorship and the big money in politics and then the control of the media and then also the, um, uh, the, the kind of false opposition, uh, candidates that you have. See, the, the, the blacks were rising up like that in the sixties and they, they basically, they bought them off with affirmative action jobs. They got all these, uh, government jobs and these, you know, these city jobs and state jobs that pay real good. And it doesn't take a lot of brains to do them like collecting money out of the parking meters and shit like that, making, you know, 20 bucks an hour full benefits. These are, go to Phil. I mean, this was like, uh, 40 years ago in Philadelphia. All those kind of jobs went to blacks, picking garbage, good paying. I mean, you say what you want about it. It was good paying jobs with full benefits. That's a really good point. And so the blacks were rioting, burning the cities down, and they decided to just buy them off with these jobs and welfare and, and everything else. But now it's it's switched over where they've pushed that shit so far to appease them that now the white people are, rebe- are are getting restless. Right. And yeah, it's because they feel, uh, they feel threatened at home, but they also feel threatened abroad. And that's the real thing is that they've taken these policies too far. You know, the interesting thing is like this guy who gives this just Jake Sullivan gives this big speech about the reorientation. I mean, what I said was not wrong. This is a guy who would have been a standard issue neoliberal, like a super neoliberal. And Joe Biden was like Joe Biden was a super neoliberal for much of his career. Uh, but I mean, why is this guy working for Hillary Clinton? Why is his wife working for Joe Lieberman? You know, I mean, I mean, these are not like, again, the, the, the incredible, uh, contrast between the rhetoric here and who these people are and where they come from and they, where they work from. It reminds me actually of, of, uh, I'm sure Joe Lieberman has some pretty stiff, stiff vetting before you work for him. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, uh, what Tom Sunick said about the, um, I remember hearing him once on a podcast talking about the, um, the ruling class in Eastern Europe under the, under communism. And how in the 1990s, and I've heard this from other guys too, how in the, in the 1990s they just like switched sides. And the former top Communist Party officials in in 1988 became the uh, like convinced neoliberals of of 1991. You know, and it's like, I mean, Angela Merkel is a great example of that. Um, and and uh, these are climbers, and 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 they they just they want to be on top, and they they will adapt. <clears throat> and and so this that's what I'm saying is there wasn't a fundamental shift in the class like that happens in history from time to time <clears throat> and they know this um I, I remember um what's his name um uh, uh, 
the uh, the Jew behind Vox. I remember him uh, one time. I heard him on a podcast talking about how he was he was reading a book and studying. He it was actually uh, who was it? Ezra Klein and uh, um, oh that other fat Jew. I forget his name, but they were discussing this book where uh, it, it said how like when you have this level of inequality, how it usually ends and like, how does the, how does like the working class or, or how does a, a ruling class like this lose its concentration of wealth? And he said that the picture was grim because it almost always happens in some kind of violent uprising or revolution. It never happens peacefully. There's always like a, either an external war where their country is beaten and they're taken over or an internal revolution or a civil war, but that, uh, when you have that kind of concentration of wealth and power that you had with the American ruling elite in the last 25, 30 years, 35 years, that that condition doesn't usually change unless there is some kind of major, major because, upheaval, violent these, upheaval. These people were fundamentally heartless, greedy hogs. They don't won't even let a little bit go. They have no sense. They don't care. You know, so the only way out of 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 for people is uh, to rebel like violently a lot of times. Yeah. So, so that's the interesting thing here is how you have yesterday's neoliberals are suddenly today's, uh, you know, the new industrial policy. uh, Yet there was no political change behind the scenes. Far from it. In fact, the same the same forces have actually only gotten gotten stronger. So, yeah, what does it say about them? Well, the other interesting thing is, aside from this, just saying that they are they feel threatened. I mean, this has been happening all year, and and really for multiple years. The fact that you had this thing when Biden got in, where he didn't uh, just roll back all of Trump's, you know, you could call it trade protectionism. Uh, or like America first foreign policy, such as it was under Trump. First of all, it lets you know uh, that Trump doing this maybe was was not just obviously was not just like because Trump was responding to his populist constituency because Trump we know Trump's entire administration was run by elites, you know, and and you had Jews like that Mnuchin and and uh, and what's his name the one that resigned after Charlottesville, uh, um, Cohen or whatever his name was. You have these like Goldman Sachs Jews running the policy of the Trump administration. So first of all, that's the first question. And Larry Summers and these kind of people, how do you have under Trump with all these super ultra like Goldman Sachs, neoliberal Wall Street Jews? How do you have Trump shifting the economic policy a little bit of the United States unless it's being done with their approval and for reasons that they want? They have their reasons. Right. And then Biden gets in with probably the most Jewish administration in history a total neoliberal old school, and yet now he continues the Trumpist. At the same time, he gives speeches about how Trump is the devil and Trump is going to you know, bring down the world order and all this. He continues these policies. It's just interesting to me because, uh, yes, they are responding to threats abroad, and uh, they don't actually want to fundamentally change the the, the, the power dynamic, the domestic power dynamic where white working class, middle class people have no power, no representation, are at the absolute bottom of the totem pole. And these this this like 
clique of of international Jews and these like ultra deep state sellout goys run everything for the benefit of big capitalists in Wall Street. They don't want to alter that power dynamic at all. And, you know, that's what a lot of the woke shit is. It's it's to make sure on a cultural level that white people are still like ground down, you know, and if, if something flares up under Trump, you, you use that as the excuse to further repress it. You know, we, we say they feel threatened and they do probably. But I'm con- I'm convinced that they feel they can handle it. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they, they feel uh, threatened a lot of times uh, for decades, but they know they can. They, they've never lost. They've yeah. never lost. That's why they, I mean, it, it's like a boxer gets in a ring and he feels he feels threatened. He better feel threatened if there's a guy in there trying to knock you out. Right. But he feels I can handle it. If I drop my guard, I could get knocked cold. But. I'm not going to do that. And I can handle it. I believe I can handle this guy. They believe they can handle January 6th. They can handle uh, progressives walking about this or that. They can handle, they're getting a little worried now about uh, the reaction to what's happening in Gaza. And that's why Biden's sending like uh, Irishmen over there to act, you know, be a, uh, a shill for Jews. But, they still feel like they can handle it and they're not about to change your ways. Yeah. And I'll just, we got to close out hour one here, but I'll just say that, um, by them, by them doing this, it just shows you that politics in a way, it's not so much what the policies are that, that, that really matters, you know, because you and I remember, uh, back in the Ross Perot years, and during the time that they're talking about, when when globalization really, you know, the end of history, Francis Fukuyama, the Clinton era, and into the, the 2000s. And we remember when that was, when to be like a trade protectionist or, or an isolationist, they would call you, you were absolutely on the outermost fringe of American politics. I mean, well, Pat Buchanan and with, Ralph Nader. It started with Nixon uh, opening up trade with China. Right, right. When I was in high school. Right. And, uh, you know, in Time Magazine, there was a, a picture of him clinking champagne glasses with Mao Zedong. I mean, that, that's when it started. And that was a great example of how it doesn't matter, like, who's in, you know, how the policy, when there's a policy shift, this this system reacts and does it, and it doesn't matter which guy gets in. It doesn't change. But But what I was going to say was the fact that the policy demands of, of those days, of the early aughts, Everybody was predicting exactly what globalization would do, yeah. that it would devastate the middle class, that it would gut our industrial sector, that it would you know, make our international uh, rivals stronger, that it would create this, this oligarchic concentration of wealth at the top. It would make our politics dirtier and more corrupt. And that it would – and you know, things like privatization, that that would erode public health. You know, that it would, you know, healthcare would go down, uh, all kinds of other things, right? Um, this was all predicted by people who at the time were, were, were treated and considered to be absolute loony fringe of American politics. Ross Perot, Pat Buchanan, Ralph Nader, right? So now they're doing this shift. Well, what it tells you is, what it tells you is that in my opinion, I mean, you tell me what you think. But I think it tells you that the people who for decades were campaigning on 
We need, uh, you know, an industrial policy that serves Americans. Uh, we need to stop, like, you know, fair trade, not free trade. Or, uh, you know, all these other kinds of things that, that, that the, the populists or the economic, uh, you know, isolationists or whatever they would call them back then would say, economic nationalists, uh, that the policies weren't actually the problem. Because now the policies are changing. Now they're changing those policies, and it seems like it's a new era. And it's sort of like, well, well, hell, why do we need Trump? Why do we need why do we need populists? Why do we need national socialism? You know, the neoliberals have decided on their own to implement a nationalist economic policy. Why do we? You know, they're they're going to help. They're going to do the working class themselves. They're going to help them out. The, the the thing is, it's not it's not how America is run, uh, like the, the policies, so much as who is running it. Like who is the who are the actual elites and on for whose behalf on whose behalf are they running this empire? They are running it on behalf of the Jews and of their you know international class uh, and this international class of traders that that runs this empire. Well, I, I think they see this as a temporary adjustment because, of like, you, like, of you, like you see, they like you said, they're, they're they feel threatened somewhat, and they and they. They know that they have to adjust things. Uh, and we saw to, this with th- the third way. Remember Clinton's third way? How it was going to be like, uh, uh, not third position, but third way. Halfway between, you know, uh, capitalism and communism. You know, we're going to have some state intervention, but we're also going to let the free markets operate. And what that, what that. China's doing. Well, well, yeah, but the, you know, the interesting thing was China did it. In a way, for the greater benefit of the Chinese people. Now, not obviously like the Chinese working class. I mean, things are very rough still in China. But for the greater, like the whole of China lifting up over generations, because things have gotten better for people in China compared to like, you know, three decades ago. Right. So it's like lifting up the nation as a whole through a combination of private and public. Um, The third way, though, with Clinton is a completely parasitic ruling class that absolutely, you know, hates the people of its own, the, the nation, the nation itself. And so their policy was to use the exact combination of public and private that like hurts the nation and helps them, you know? Right. You know, it's like Ralph Nader said about, what did he say, that they uh, want to um, privatize profits and socialize losses, which was one of the best things I ever heard. Privatize, you know. And so that's why you see now this guy, a, 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 a deep state ghoul creep, like this Jake Sullivan, who Biden's now sending over there to, to uh, Israel to be the goy face on the Jewish policy. Um, for them, to, For him to be talking about this policy change, it's going to be exactly the same. They're going to tweak because every one of the policies that he outlines, it's like, well, we can have our cake and eat it too. You know, we can have private incentive, but we can also take care of our, everything will be done to just shore up Jewish power, to entrench the wall street, you know, ruling class, take a little bit of steam off here, tweak this, you know, uh, but at the end of the day, it's still not going to benefit the people who've suffered under these policies because there's no, been no actual political change that there's been no actual changing of the guard they're just tweaking their policies in the moment they're tweaking their rhetoric as you say their bullshit is changing it's a different set of bullshit now that they're feeding people but it's just it's just to keep them in and and driving like the actual nation into the ground 
Yeah, because the, the living standard of a blue-collar worker with an eighth-grade education in 1962 is not coming back. Right, right, right. So we'll pause here, guys. Pick us up in the second hour. On the other side, please subscribe to the rightstuff.biz. We'll see you on the other side. 